What is SCC? What does it mean to be part of Southport Church of Christ? So our vision here at Southport is about following Jesus, transforming lives. This is the mission Jesus calls us to, that we're not just a church of six pastors, but we're a church of over 600 ministers. Great to see you this morning and hope that the service has been an encouragement for you so far and what we'll look at over this next uh, few minutes. We've been uh, talking about grace and last week was Pastor Zane talking about grace in our story. And over this last couple of weeks, God's really been speaking to people. People have been so encouraged uh, with Zane last week and... um, just something that he shared in the PM service, which I thought was good, I wanted to share it now this morning, is he was talking about how um, grace even reached to him, you know, to where he was in life, and he felt that before Christ he was sort of at this low level, travelling along like this in life, and then the temptation was to sin, and every time he did, he felt like he was, through sinning, he was sort of rised a little bit just for a while and then sink back down again and continue this sort of pattern going like that. But when he came to know Jesus, it's like all of a sudden he was operating this whole other different level with the peace and joy and purpose in life that he had never had before. And when he was tempted to sin then, it was like he was dropping down to this other past level. It's like, why am I doing that when Jesus has now changed my life so much and I am travelling like this? I find that to be one of the greatest apologetics or greatest defences of the faith, the reality of life change. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if a person's in Jesus, they're a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. And so that grace, we've been celebrating how grace can reach even to where the lowest are and, um, and lift them up. And today's our fifth message in the series on grace, last message in the series. And it might be surprising for you to know that not everyone is happy about grace. Not everyone loves it, even those who are committed in their faith communities, even those who are leaders in faith communities, are not happy about grace and all that it can mean. Because not everyone loves the idea that grace is provided to those who they think are undeserving. Because if God is truly just, then surely grace must have some limits. There's got to be some kind of limit. And so today we're going to look at a couple of parables, stories Jesus told to help us to get a bit of a clearer understanding about what grace is really all about, to give us a clearer appreciation of it. And we'll start with this, a few words from Luke 15, one of the parables Jesus told about the prodigal son, and it says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
Now, the parables introduce different characters in these stories. They kind of draw us in because we identify with the different characters which are there. And I wonder for you, where are you in this parable? We think about the father, we think about the, the elder son who's there at home working in the fields and the younger son taking his inheritance early and going off and squandering it in wild living. Now, last week, Zane shared about how he was kind of like that younger brother and his message really touched a lot of people who relate to that, being that younger brother in that parable, the one who was rebellious and lived for pleasure in the moment and God's grace was able to reach to him. But for me, where am I? I look at that parable and I can see I'm like the elder brother. I'm right where I'm meant to be. I'm there in the fields working, sweating under the hot sun, serving faithfully, doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing when I'm meant to be doing it. Now that younger brother, he's off living a wild life, an easy life out there far from God, but I'm still right where I'm meant to be, working hard for the Father. And I suspect I'm not alone. That as a church, as churches, as we encounter this particular parable, a lot of us, maybe most of us, are like that elder brother. They're always being faithful. And that can be a big problem for us. We're looking at that today. Because today we are talking about the offensiveness of grace. You might think offensiveness is a pretty strong word, so how about the scandalousness of grace? Well, how about just that grace seems to some people to be blatantly unfair? It's unfair. Such an important for us to look at today because... Last week, Pastor Zane was talking about how grace meets us in our lowest moments. But what about how the flip side of that, which is how grace meets other people in their lowest moments? That's still great too, isn't it? Not just that it is there for us, but it's there for others at their lowest moments. That's great too, right? Right? That's also important. So let's dive into this to try and gain a greater, a deeper understanding about God's grace. By way of introduction, in Matthew 19, if you've got a Bible, you're welcome to open to it, Jesus is engaging with a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler has lived a very righteous life and wants to know how to obtain eternal life. And so Jesus says, just take all of your wealth, all of your possessions, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. You'll have reward in heaven. But the young man goes away sad because he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to sell all of his possessions. He doesn't want to be associated with the poor and blessing them. And so he walks away from Jesus sad. And Jesus says to his disciples, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. In fact, it's impossible. Without God's help, it's impossible. With God's help, all things are possible. Now, one of the disciples, Peter, he's watching all of this, and he says this in verse 27. He answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, G uh, Peter's ears had kind of pricked up because Jesus had talked about rewards in heaven. And so he's thinking, Well, what's coming our way? What are we going to get? Because we've given up so much. I used to be a fisherman, remember Jesus? Remember that and how I walked away from my nets and gave up everything to follow you? Um, what am I going to get? And so then this directly leads on to a parable Jesus tells in Matthew 20, which we're going to look at, which talks about what grace looks like. So let's dive in. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning 
to hire men to work in his vineyard. And so Jesus says, listen up, I want to show you the way things really are in the kingdom of God. So he tells a story. A landowner goes out early in the morning to the marketplace. It's the start of the day, so let's say it's 6 a.m., and he's looking for workers to work in his vineyard. Now here's an example of a sundial uh, from the first century. So that would be kind of set up facing the sun. You can see it's kind of concaved with the inside part divided up into 12 sections. They didn't think in terms of minutes in the day and things like that. They just divided up the daytime hours into 12 sections. So let's say 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. There's like a little needle thing which is pointing out and that's caused the shadow to move from left to right throughout the day. So assuming this is set up in Israel, so that's the northern hemisphere, can anyone take a guess as to what time that is saying? Anyone? So if we take the top, we'll be six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Probably just after halfway between ten and eleven in the morning. If you don't quite get it, come and see me and I can explain it to you later. <laughs> and so an example of a sundial broken up into twelve segments. In the winter, the segments would be shorter, right? Now I find it significant that in the story, right at the start, it's the landowner which is going out. So he's going to have other staff, but he goes himself to the marketplace, calling people to come and work in his vineyard. Who's the landowner a picture of? God? Okay. And who is he calling to? You and me, people like us, right? And um, the marketplace is the world. And the vineyard is God's kingdom, where he is in charge. And everyone who accepts the invite to follow Jesus comes into God's kingdom. Verse 2. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. And so the vineyard owner, he finds people that are waiting in the marketplace to be employed. Uh, He talks to them, engages with them. It seems that there's some sort of negotiation, but eventually they strike upon an agreement that they'll work for a denarius a day to work all day. Now, for a day labourer, the unskilled work, that's great pay. That's the same kind of pay that a Roman soldier would get per day. So it's a really good deal that they're getting, and so they head off to begin their long work day, 12 hours out there in the hot sun. Verse 3. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So about the third hour. So what time is that? 9 a.m. So there's no haggling that happens this time. They're just happy to be working, we see in the story. Verse 5, so they went. And he went out again about the sixth hour, so that's noon, and about the ninth hour, so 3 p.m., and did the same thing. Now, I love it how in this parable it's the landowner, it's him going out himself. God himself going out into the marketplace of the world, calling people to himself. Verse 6 says, About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. So all day long, this vineyard owner has been coming and going from his vineyard to the marketplace, seeking workers to come and join him in the work at the vineyard. Now, here he is at the 11th hour. That's probably where the saying comes from, the 11th hour, 5 p.m. He's still calling people to come and I'll pay you. 
there's not even one work hour left. I mean, they've got to get from the marketplace out to the vineyard, which is going to be out in the countryside. It's all walking. There's no buses. They're going to get out there and they've lost another 10 or 15 minutes of that last hour. The sun's getting pretty low. It's poking through the trees, maybe. I've been a, I've been a tradies labourer a few times when I was at uni. And when you're getting to this stage of the day, pretty much the work day is over. You're just cleaning up the, washing up the buckets and getting the extension cords and rolling them up properly and packing up the ute or the truck or whatever. And the work day is just about done. But they turn up and they're working. Now, verse 8, when evening came, so the sun's gone down, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. Wow, so generous. They got paid what the agreement was for the people which were going to work all day. A full day's pay for an hour's work. I guess you think about it though. I mean, the landowner knew that if he paid them one twelfth of a denarius, it's not going to help them that much. They've got to go back to their families. They're not going to have enough to feed them. He's ensuring that they've got enough to feed their families for another day. Now, not just generous, but compassionate this landowner is too. Verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. I mean, if those layabouts get only, you know, they, they, they only worked one hour and they get a denarius, what are we going to get? We've been out there all day. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, as we look at those verses, the key words there are, and you have made them equal to us. How dare you? We have worked so hard out there in the hot sun, the burning sun, literally, as it says, been slaving away for you. Why should those who turned up with less than an hour to go get the same amount as us? Who thinks that's a fair complaint? Who thinks this person's got a point? It doesn't really seem fair that those people maybe work 45 minutes and they get treated the same way. I wonder if you think that's unfair. Verse 13 goes on to say this. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Here's an aside, a little FYI. If Jesus ever, if you were ever engaging with Jesus and he was to say, to you, friend. He only uses that exact word for friend three times in Matthew. And if he ever was to say that to you, that would be a great opportunity for you to um, maybe apologize, uh, ask for forgiveness, and then stop talking. Um, so the other times that he uses it in Matthew, it's when uh, Jesus is giving the parable of the king at the wedding and then there's someone there who doesn't have wedding clothes and he says, friend, what are you doing in here without the wedding clothes? And he has to be forcibly removed from there. He uses it again um, in Matthew 26 when he's talking to Judas as he's being betrayed in the garden and he says, friend, do what you came for. And here, for the 6 a.m. workers accusing him of being unfair, he calls them, he says, friend, again. So for Jesus in Matthew, friend means I haven't done anything wrong to you, but you're being unfairly hostile towards me. What's going on? Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious 
Literally, do you have an evil eye? Because I am generous. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's an interesting parable, isn't it? Never heard anyone else preach on it. I've never preached on it before, but I felt like God has something for us in this. At the end of the parable, the punchline here, the landowner pushes back against this accusation of being unfair. He rejects that and tries to explain to these disgruntled workers that he's generous. And he wants everyone who works for him to be equally blessed. And the only fault in this are those people which are comparing themselves to other people and wanting more. That's the only fault the landowner is saying is going on here. Because they're thinking they're superior to those other ones who only came at five o'clock. Because they had worked longer and harder. And the landowner says, you just don't get me. You just don't understand me at all. I'm generous. I want to have grace to all. It's a baffling story, isn't it? As uh, Philip Yancey says in his book, so, What's So Amazing About Grace, we can risk missing the story's main point, and that is that God dispenses gifts, not wages, because not one of us gets paid according to our so-called merit. Because if we were paid on the basis of fairness, what is it that we all deserve? It's not good. Now back to that parable of the prodigal son that we started with, that older brother out in the fields, so faithful, right where he should be, working for the father. The younger son is off squandering the family wealth. It's the same concept. The younger son returns, and we read in Luke 15, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Both of these parables are kind of the same, different characters, but whether you're the, it's the workers in the vineyard or the prodigal son, we have similar characters here. The landowner, which is like the loving father, it's a picture of God and how they are beyond generous. See these pictures here? You can understand. Look at the picture on the left there with the little cheeky grin of the guy down the bottom getting a denarius. You can understand why that guy would be so upset seeing that. Um, the loving father, the landowner, is beyond generous to show grace to those who don't deserve it. The 5 p.m. workers get a full day's wage. The younger son gets a hero's welcome. They throw a party for him after wasting all of the family, all of his inheritance. Then there's the other group, the people that had worked in the hot sun all day, or the elder brother out there plowing in the fields, never left the farm, but he stayed. They compare themselves to the other and they're not happy. Now, where are you in these parables? Because for the group who isn't happy with grace... The, the one there with the red hat who's worked all day, the elder brother out in the fields, what would we have wanted to see from them? As we're listening to these stories, what kind of response would we have loved to see? I think we would have wanted to see at least two things from that particular group. Firstly, celebration. I mean, we had the, the, the father there celebrating. Wouldn't it have been great for the elder brother to have been celebrating as well that the younger brother would return? Wouldn't it have been great for those 12-hour workers to celebrate 
Firstly, of the character of this landowner that they'd been able to work for and be closely associated with someone so amazing that, that, that they would be so generous. Wouldn't it be great if they could have celebrated that, perhaps? And not just celebrated his character, but joined in with the celebration um, there, rather than pointing the finger, to, to come into the household and join in with the celebration there that the younger son had come back and been blessed beyond all reason. They weren't given what they deserved anyway. Um, and they, whether you are the elder brother or you're the 6 p.m. workers, both of them still had a really great deal. The, 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 the 6 a.m. workers that had been there all the time, they still got a denarius, which was more than they should have deserved. And then the elder brother's always been in the household of faith with all the resources of the family at his disposal. How wonderful it would have been to see them celebrate. So why do we struggle with this so much? I think we struggle with this kind of grace showing to the undeserving because many of us view life as a zero-sum game. Do you know what I'm saying with that? A zero-sum game. It's like if, if someone wins, then I must be losing in some way. And so I have to kind of tear them down. Australians love this. They understand this perfectly, this whole idea of the tall poppy syndrome. We can't let anyone get too far ahead, you know, because they're going to get a big head, so we'll pull them down to our level. You know, we're doing it for their benefit, right? And so... We, uh, we feel like we're missing out unless we pull them down. We can't put other people up because I must be missing out in some way. We think, what about me? What about all I've done? So we don't let other people get put on a pedestal. Maybe we think there isn't enough grace to go around. You know, like the people which are out working all day, they're working because money is a scarce resource. You know, and so that gives something value if it's scarce. Maybe grace is so valuable because it's so scarce and we have to hoard it and just let a little bit out now and again. Is that what grace is like? Just letting so little out? Maybe we forget that being in a faith community, if we choose to elevate someone and lift them up, it's like the rising tide. Everyone gets lifted up as grace becomes a part of the culture and what we're doing. So it would have been great to see them celebrate. I think another thing that would have been great to see that particular group do would be to have gratitude. Because those workers from 6am were already being paid a generous amount, a denarius. They negotiated, and the landowner was good enough to pay to his word. The eldest son, he always had the resources of the family at his disposal. So gratitude would have been the right way to look at this. Why weren't they grateful? Why aren't we more grateful? Maybe it's so easy to forget what we've been saved from. Because we think we're not so bad after all. And for those other people, maybe there's some limits to grace here. Just as, a, as an illustration, um, the name Jeffrey Dahmer might not be known to many of you, but he was a serial killer back in the late 80s and early 90s. And there's actually a Netflix show at the moment which is about him, and so some people have, have come to, to, to know him through that. So he was a killer who even dismembered his victims and ate some of them. And so a terrible, horrific situation here. This person was captured, uh, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. But when he was in there, he was given a Bible. He started to read it. He believed the message about Jesus, and he becomes a Christian. And so he reaches out to a local church because he wants to be baptized. Gets in contact with the pastor, and the pastor says, I ain't doing it. So that pastor gets in contact with another pastor called Roy Ratcliffe. Now, Roy said he'd do it, and he talked about how he's so terrified 
when he went into the prison meeting with the serial killer, meeting with him for the first time. But after talking with Jeffrey for a while, he discovered that this was real. Jeffrey had actually believed it. It wasn't just like some kind of jailhouse conversion, you know, to try and please a jury or something like that because no one was going to have pity on this guy. And so it seems like it was genuine. And so Pastor Roy, he received permission to baptise Jeffrey and he did that. And afterwards he started regularly meeting with him to disciple him. Now, uh, Jeffrey once asked Roy if he, short, if he thought that he should have been given the death penalty. And the Pastor Roy said, yeah, I think you probably should have been executed for all the things you've done. And he said, but we're in Wisconsin, there's no death penalty. And so uh, Jeffrey said, well, do you think I'm sinning by remaining alive? They had lots of these kind of deep kind of conversations about theology and so forth. Um, in 1994, Jeffrey was uh, beaten to death by another inmate in the prison. And Pastor Roy took his memorial service, took his funeral, and he spoke about Jeffrey's faith in Christ. And it brought a pretty angry response because... The family members wanted more assurance that Jeffrey was going to burn in hell for all eternity. And even a fellow pastor said to Roy, Jeffrey's salvation stretches my view of grace. It stretches my view of grace. And Pastor Roy responded, If this stretches your view of grace, then it needs to be stretched. We all deserve hell. Jeffrey is an example of grace. Think about Ted Bundy, another mass murderer or serial killer in America, he would literally wear an arm cast or a leg cast and walk around uni campuses so that some unsuspecting girl would come up to him and say, oh, can I help you with your textbooks? She would help him back to the car, then he would overpower her, abduct her, and then kill her. That thing happened over and over. A terrible thing. He was captured, sentenced to death in the electric chair. And the day before he was executed... James Dobson, who was the founder of Focus on the Family, did an interview with him, quite a famous interview, goes for about over 35 minutes. And during that time, as the, the interview is going, the lights sort of go, and then they come back again. And uh, Ted Bundy says, oh, that's just the staff testing the electric chair for me for tomorrow, which is exactly what they were doing. And then the next day, he was executed, and everyone said, serves him right. But... Um, James Dobson interviewed Ted Bundy because he'd become a Christian while he was in prison. Now, how do you feel about Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy being in the presence of God right now in heaven, being able to have access to all of that, receiving forgiveness and being in God's presence? What about this? What about if you were there standing before Jesus and the two people on either side and you saw the criminals there on either side, if you looked at those criminals, you could have thought, yep, you're getting exactly what you deserve. And then Jesus turns to one of them and says, today you will be with me in paradise. You'd be like, what? Jesus, don't you understand what he's done? He's getting what he deserved. He's lived his whole life as a criminal. That's not fair. What has this criminal done to deserve paradise? He's literally down to his last breath. I find it significant that the very first person to trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus wasn't some elderly saint, you know, had been faithful their whole life. It was someone who was a criminal dying on the cross and, you know, in his, one of his last sentences, you know, asks for forgiveness that, that Jesus would remember him and he was shown grace. I think that that tells us something about God and his appetite for giving grace to the undeserving. And if we're talking about what we deserve, what well, all of us deserve, 
hell, don't we? All of us have rebelled against him. And if any of us are saved, it's only because of God's grace. Now, back in Matthew 19, 27, Peter's question, which started all of this, you know, look what we've given up. What do I get? What, what kind of reward are we going to get? Peter was still trying to earn his way. He was trying to deserve all that was coming. He didn't understand God's grace. Now, I wonder, could that be you today? Here's five questions for you to consider about whether that could be you. Firstly, am I bitter because God has withheld some blessings from me that I think I deserve? Now, when bad things happen to us in life, it's normal to feel sad. That's okay. But if there is anger and bitterness which comes with that, we need to ask ourselves, why is that? Why are we having that kind of reaction? Because it speaks volumes about our relationship with God and what we feel we deserve we should have had in life. Because we think, I don't deserve this. Am I jealous of good things others have that I want? Now, why do they get that when I don't? Look at all the things I've done. Do I get angry when God doesn't answer my prayers the way I think he should? Do I feel uncertain about where I stand with God or insecure about the future? If we don't feel secure in our relationship with God, we'd probably try to earn what he offers us for free. And so what should be our greatest joy, which is following Jesus and serving him, it becomes a struggle. Am I moved towards action when I see the suffering of others? Or am I tempted to withhold grace from those who need it most? Romans 3 says this, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, apart from performing to belong, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So in conclusion, grace is offensive. Grace is scandalous. It seems unfair. It's hard to accept. And it's even hard to receive. It shocks us in what it offers because grace is not of this world. It's truly not of this world. And the truth is, we're all sinners and we are all in need of God's amazing grace. Now what should you do if you feel like this has struck a nerve for you today? I want you to think about, remember, what God has saved you from. Think about that. Think about how he saved you and the ways he has continued to be faithful to you throughout your life. No matter what you think about grace or limits we might impose on grace because we feel like there must be some limit here for God to be just, Jesus is telling us that there is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, where there's different values which are at play. It's a kingdom where God's justice is held back and it's held back and it's held back in hopes that sinners would repent, they'd turn from their ways. And then when someone reaches out and receives grace, when they turn to Jesus in trust and faith, grace just gushes out for them, for those who need it most. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And there is rejoicing with the angels in heaven for even one sinner who repents. 
Because in that kingdom, grace is always looking forward to gush forward to the undeserving. And the truth is, that's all of us. That's you and me. Why don't we take a moment just to be alone with the Lord in our thoughts? And if you feel like God has spoken to you in some way, I'll just give you a moment just to, to be in silent prayer with him. And then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. It just baffles us sometimes that you are so filled with grace that you are able to stoop so low to reach those who need grace the most. Father, it's all of us. Lord, we all need your grace, your forgiveness. And uh, we just want to say thank you, Lord, just with gratitude for all that you have done. We know that uh, as we are before the throne in a, in a place in a time to come, we'll be singing your praise for all eternity, not because of anything that we have done, but because it's all you. Help us to grasp that, Lord, while there's time, Lord, in this life, Lord, to celebrate that, to be grateful, and to be the right kind of ambassadors of yours, Lord, um, people who have experienced your amazing grace and um, share that with others. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, team.